Welcome back to What You Will Learn. My name is Adam Ashton. And my name is Adam Jones. Today, we're taking you through the best pits of the Almanac of Naval Ravikant by Eric Jorgensen, A Guide to Wealth and Happiness. We're going to focus on the wealth part of that equation here, and it's all about how to get rich without getting lucky. Because Naval says that making money, it's not really a, a thing that happens to you. It's actually a skill you learn. And Naval says that if you dropped him in any random street in any English-speaking country with no money and no connections, he says because he's developed the skills of making money, within five or 10 years, he's going to be wealthy again because it's a skill set that he's developed and it's a skill set that anybody can develop. So, Eric Jorgensen, he must be a friend of Naval or something or a fan and he's really extracted all of the wisdom that he's found from Naval Ravikant through his uh, his Twitter account and some of his blog posts and his writing and everything like that and really compiled it all into this one book. Making money, it's really not about how hard you work because you can work 80 hours a week in a restaurant or stacking supermarket shelves but even if you're working that hard, probably harder than a lot of other people, you're still not going to get rich because getting rich... It's really knowing what to do, who to do it with, and when to do it. That's much more important than just working really, really hard. It's much more about understanding than just purely hard grunt work. Obviously, hard work matters and it's better if you are a hard worker and you can't skimp on it, but it has to be directed in the right way. If you don't know yet what you should be working on, the most important thing to do is to figure it out. If you find yourself in the first job that you've ever been in, um, Perhaps it's not the best idea to just work extremely hard. Maybe just find out uh, if this is your jam and your job now is actually to find out what your jam is. So, Naval, throughout the rest of this book and this episode, we're going to share his principles for getting rich. He says he's been thinking about these things since he was really young, since like he was 13 or 14. He'd been carrying them around in his head. He'd been living them and practicing them over and over. And then, as he said, he shared them through Twitter, through blogs, through interviews on some of the biggest podcasts in the world. Over time, he's got really good at looking at businesses and figuring out the point of maximum leverage to create wealth and capture some of what's created. So he says that we need to arm ourselves with three things, specific knowledge, leverage, and accountability. The first part of this puzzle to making money is specific knowledge. And this is knowledge you cannot be trained for. If society can train you, it can train someone else and just replace you. It can be found by pursuing your genuine curiosity and passion rather than whatever is hot right now. And building specific knowledge is going to feel like play to you and it's going to look like work to others. And when specific knowledge is taught, it's through apprenticeships and not schools. It cannot be outsourced or automated. So one example of specific knowledge could be sales skills. It seems like some people are just natural in sales. It seems like they can get people to do what they want them to do. It seems like they could sell ice to Eskimos. And when you meet someone who is that natural in sales... You just know that they kind of they're kind of amazing. This is like this form of specific knowledge that Naval is talking about. Obviously they learnt it from somewhere, but it wasn't from a classroom. Yeah, it's pretty impressive when you come across these sorts of people. It's quite intimidating because you think, how the hell can I uh, I, you know, be like them? It comes so naturally to them. That is potentially the case. It is maybe part of their DNA where they're uh, where some of their early childhood experiences developed them. But it doesn't mean that we can't go out there and improve our sales skills also. There's some phenomenal books that we've come across on this podcast like Robert Cialdini's. Uh, you might go to a sales training seminar. You, you might just start doing door-to-door sales and just stuffing your way through that. It's going to be brutal, but some things you can do, it's going to train you very, very quickly. And over time, you can improve your sales skills in this form of specific knowledge. So specific knowledge, it can't be taught in a classroom You probably can't read just one textbook and suddenly gain this specific knowledge, but it can be learnt. 
One thing he suggests is you need to figure out what you're doing as a kid or a teenager that felt almost effortless. Something that you probably don't even consider a skill, but something that people around you notice. So a lot of you know the kids on the playground who you see that natural uh, that natural salesman, the person who's willing to get you to trade your chocolate cake for their dodgy sour apple on the <laughs> playground. They, they they probably don't even realize what they're doing. They don't even know it's a skill. It seems effortless to them, but it seems amazing to you. Might be a music talent. We've recently did Derek Sivers' book. Obviously, he was a music talent. He was interested in business. Combined those two, found his thing. Um, could be an obsessive personality. I think back in one of mine, what came easy when I was younger was playing some video games. I, might, I know there's a lot of people who hang <laughs> shit on video games, but I remember getting into flow, playing StarCraft and actually going up level by level. Probably looking back at um, developed a certain area of the brain, which I tap into nowadays. It might be a bit of game theory. Or if you're just a gossiper, if you're just um, bitching about people and you're finding out all the information about everyone, it's a bit of a shitty trait to have. But in one, on the other sense, uh, it might make you an interesting journalist because somehow you get to the bottom of all the interesting stories in, in your friendship group. So, Naval combines a bunch of specific knowledge areas. He says he's got some sales skills. He's got a lot of analytical skills. Uh, he's able to absorb data, obsess about it, break it down. That's a specific skill. He loves tinkering with technology. Um, all this stuff feels like play to him, but it often might feel like work to others. If you told me to, to take an old laptop that's broken down and pull it apart and try to play around with it to get it working again, that would feel like work to me, but Naval just loves it. Yeah, some things are just not for you and if you're not good at it and you're not into it, maybe it's just not your thing and you're going to move on, focus on finding the thing that you're really into. This specific knowledge we're talking about, it's going to be on the edge of knowledge. It's not going to be a commodity thing. It's not going to be something where you can do a course that everybody else is doing and you just become the best at that. It's going to be something a little bit obscure, a little bit different. Yeah, and it's one of those things that you can find by pursuing your innate talents, your genuine curiosity and your passion. It's not by going to school for whatever is the hottest job right now. Um, and if you're not 100% into it, somebody else might be 100% into it and they're going to outperform you. And remember, with our specific knowledge, we want to be right on the cusp of um, having a very scarce skill set, which is disproportionately valuable. And it's not going to be scarce if uh, someone else is more into it than you. Yeah, it's important that we're not just chasing the shiny new thing, that we're not just doing what's hot right now. We're looking a lot more long-term rather than just short-term. You can't just think this new thing that's popped up, TikTok pops up and you think I'm going to become a TikTok expert. You need to instead become something more valuable, becoming like a content creator expert because that doesn't rely on a single platform. It's not just the new hot trend. You can then use that over the long-term for any new thing that pops up. So there's a lot of things that you've probably learned throughout your life um, and 99% of it probably has nothing to do with finding and developing specific knowledge. It's only going to be 1%. So one of the things we need to do is find what the 1% is and then disproportionately spend our time on that. Like a fire hydrant hose, you're going to just be gushing. I know where this metaphor is going. <laughs> but you're going to be gushing at the 1% and you're going to be have accelerated returns in this one area. Yeah, you go through that, that period of... of search it seems to come up in every single episode the explore period where you're going to explore and try out a whole bunch of different things a lot of it's going to be wasted a lot of the things that you you're going through and, and practicing and learning aren't going to be that one specific knowledge that you can develop but when you find that one percent that's when you start to exploit it that's when you start to go deep when you find that one percent that's when you use all of your discipline and hard work and uh, shoot that fire hydrant hose right at it yeah absolutely mate you gotta get the hose out um, and then if you got to this point, life becomes a little bit easier because let's say you figure it out once you're at university, 
all of a sudden you just drop into your geography or your history class and you're sitting there and you're thinking, this, this shit's just boring. <laughs> this isn't going to be um, contributing to the my specific knowledge. So forget the sunk cost, drop the class. It's a waste of time and it's a waste of your brain energy. You said it's hard to find that 1%, but when you find it, go all in on that and forget everything else. We're living in an age of infinite leverage. And now there are three broad classes of leverage. The first is labor. So that's leveraging labor. That's getting other humans working for you. Now, this is the oldest form of leverage. Uh, It doesn't seem like it's anything revolutionary for, for thousands of years or probably more than thousands of years. You've had a boss who's managing labor. They're leveraging other people's physical efforts to benefit for themselves. Now, this is tremendously difficult and it can get messy. Let's say you start a business. If you begin with a team of two and three and four and five, as you get higher and higher amounts of people, it gets much more difficult to actually manage so many people. Of course, it requires tremendous leadership skills. So, um, you're going to hit a lot of barriers as you go up and say, get into a thousand employees. That is no easy task. That's something that's probably going to take a lifetime to get to that point of leverage. The second area, the second broad class is money. Now, money is a big form of leverage. It means that every time you make a decision, you can multiply it with money to make it far more impactful. Now, leveraging money and capital is probably been used over the last century, more than the last thousand years or so, but the last century, heaps of people have become very rich by leveraging money. For the top companies around the world today who have been around for decades and were part of the previous generation getting rich, the top job right now is usually an accountant's job. So, the CEO has typically got an accounting background and that's because they know how to move money around and then use it as a form of leverage to get the most return. So, if you get good at managing capital, you can manage more and more capital easily, then you can manage more and more people. Like let's say if you're running a big hedge fund, managing $10 $10 billion or managing $1 billion, your day probably looks the same compared to a company where they're managing 100 people compared to managing 100,000 people. Yeah, that's it. The dollar the dollar bills don't talk back. They don't take sickies. Uh, you don't really need leadership skills to manage money like you do to manage people. And then the third area of leverage is products. He says this is a pretty new concept like labor that's been around forever, money uh, not forever, but much more recently, it's been around for a long time. But products, he says, is a much newer thing and specifically leveraging products with no marginal cost of replication. So, this includes books, media, movies and code. So, let's just say this podcast, it costs the exact same amount for us to reach 10 people as it does 10,000 people because there's zero marginal cost of replication. The costs don't increase with the increase in the amount of users. Very similar thing when it comes to book. Write a book once, um, the same amount of effort that goes into one sale as it does to a million sales. This new form of leverage started really around the time of the printing press, it accelerated with broadcast media, and now it's really blown up with internet and coding. If you think about it, all you really need to tap into this form of leverage is a computer. You don't need anyone's permission. You obviously need a little bit of skill to start coding, but you can then multiply your efforts without involving other humans, without a need for money, without a need for permission. You've really got a lot of control, a lot of leverage over this this new form. 
So all the new billionaires from here on forwards, it's going to be using this form of leverage, he says. This is where all the new fortunes are going to be made. For the previous generations, it was all about capital. If you think about the Warren Buffetts or the Ray Dalios of the world, it was all about that second form of leverage. But our generation, the fortune is going to be made through code or media. Think about Joe Rogan. Listen to his podcast. He's making $50 million, $100 million a year from his podcast. All of a sudden, the one person is bigger than the daily news. Similar thing for Jeff Bezos with Amazon, Mark Zuckerberg putting code into Facebook, Larry Page, Sergey Brin, Bill Gates, Steve Jobs. Uh, just after reading this, I was just watching out in the news, having this in the mind, like who are the new billionaire, billion-dollar companies that are popping up when I listen to a few other podcasts. Similar thing, uh, quite recently listened to Peloton. Before Peloton, you had to go to a spin class with um, – 30 or 40 people, all of a sudden you've got the one bike from at home and the one spin class can have a million different people and a few ones closer to home, Afterpay, Atlassian. These are all the big companies in Australia and again, it's all about this third form of leverage. As humans, we evolved in societies where there's really no leverage. You know, we'll chop in wood, you're carrying water, whatever physical tasks you're doing, you knew that eight hours of work really led to eight hours of output. And then once... Uh, leverage was created, you know, through money, through labor, through managing people, through these products. Now, it's actually not that eight hours of input leads to eight hours of output. If you can leverage yourself and tap into all these different areas, uh, a leveraged worker can produce a thousand or even 10,000 times the amount of output as a non-leveraged worker. For example, if you're a great software engineer, just by writing a little piece of code and creating the right little application, you can literally create half a billion dollars worth of value for a company, just one person. But at the same time, 10 engineers working 10 times as hard and just because they chose a different but wrong model or the wrong product and wrote it in the wrong way or put it in the wrong viral loop, they've basically wasted their time. So in this era that we live now, the inputs do not match the outputs and this is especially for leveraged workers. So up until this point, remember there's three parts of the puzzle to making money and getting rich. The first part was about building specific knowledge. The second part was using leverage and understanding where you can apply leverage. Now, the third part we're going to get into now is all about accountability. If you don't own a piece of a business, you don't have a path towards financial freedom. So you can either build that equity by building your own company or you can buy that equity by buying a piece of a business. The major difference between owning a bit of a business and being a salary employee is ownership versus wage work. If you're paid for renting out your time, even like the big dog, the people on the big salaries you think, um, they're not really going to get rich. Even the lawyers and the doctors, they might be able to make a little bit of money, but it's not going to get you to the point of financial freedom. They're not going to have any passive income where a business is earning for you while you're on vacation in the Barbados sipping uh, cocktails of your choice. A lot of people probably think that just by working harder, by working more, by earning a higher dollar per hour wage, that's going to lead them to, to wealth and riches. But Naval says, no, without ownership, your inputs are always going to be very closely tied to your outputs. Whilst you can probably get a, a, you know, an extra few bucks an hour, uh, you still have to put in the hours. You, know, you don't earn money while you sleep. You don't earn money while you're retired. You don't earn money while you're on holidays. You can't earn non-linearly. It's always going to be tied to the inputs. 
If you even look at the people who are doctors, lawyers, or engineers who do get rich, like really rich, it's not because they're an engineer pumping out computations. It's because they open a business or a private practice and then they build a brand and that attracts people. And then they, from there, they might use people as the form of leverage doing the work or they might build some kind of product or a medical device, which is another form of leverage. And that is how they get their nonlinear returns. Essentially, if you're working for someone else, that person, they're taking on the risk. Uh, they've taken on the accountability. They've taken on the intellectual property. They're building a brand. They're never going to pay you enough to get really, really rich. They're going to pay you the bare minimum to keep you around to get you to do your job. Uh, and whilst it might, be a, it might be a high bare minimum, it's always going to be the bare minimum. So, owning equity in a company or starting your business means you own the upside. When big things happen to your company, you get a cut of the action. On the other hand, if you're someone who owns debt, you're guaranteed revenue streams, but you own the downside. So, if you don't own equity in a business, meaning the upside only, uh, your odds of making money are going to be very slim. So, there's a few ways you can do it. You can work up to the point where you build your own business and own equity, or you can do it as a small shareholder and when you go and buy stock, you can have the upside. But whatever you do, ownership is very important and is the goal. So, the big wealth is really created by either you know, investing in a business or by creating and starting your own company. Now, thankfully, in today's world, there's no such thing as a debtor's prison. People aren't thrown in jail or executed for losing other people's money. So, you can take on other people's money. You can take on risk. Uh, and uh, at the end of the day, if, if it all crashes and burns, uh, the worst thing is, is you're going to be out of money, obviously, and you, you might have a bit of a black mark against your name, but you're not going to be literally executed for it or imprisoned unless you're doing something super dodgy. Which is pretty good nowadays. I think bankruptcy is as your worst of the worst case scenarios. If you go out there, have the biggest swing of your entire life, you um, take on the accountability in, in getting venture capital and things like that, and you have a good crack at it, if it doesn't work out... A lot of the time, you might actually even build your brand in the process, he says, if you're doing it in a form of uh, a lot of trust and integrity and you're doing your best shot and everyone knows you're having a good crack at it. In a roundabout way, there might be very little downside because we're not in the, the debtor's prison, but you still might have that huge form of upside that can come with owning a big company. So, we spoke about accountability being vitally important and what accountability means is you're captaining the ship. You probably built the ship, which is your company. You're also the captain of the ship. And in the old days, when the ship goes down, the captain's the last person to jump off into the lifeboat and that's what accountability is. Thankfully, the ship's not sinking here, but the accountability and the risks you're taking now probably means you're the last person to get your capital back out. Anything you've personally invested into building the company, you're probably the last one to get that. You're also probably the last person to get paid for your time. You might be working, working, working without seeing a cent hitting your own personal bank account. Uh, but these are the risks that you take on. This is the accountability that you need to build a big company and to build that big wealth. So let's now bring it all together, three elements we've covered, specific knowledge, leverage, and accountability with just one industry. Um, and you can apply this really to any industry and it'll be a similar story. But firstly, let's just look at the real estate business. The starting point in the real estate business and probably the, the arguably the worst kind of job in terms of getting rich and building wealth, that's the, the laborer. That's the person who's repairing a house. They might be getting paid 10, 15, 20 bucks an hour. You go to someone's house, the boss says, here's your job for today, go and fix this, patch the hole in the wall. Uh, you've got zero leverage. You've got a, a little bit of accountability, but that accountability is really to the boss. It's not to the client who's, who's paying for the job, it's just to the boss. You don't have a whole lot of specific knowledge because it's, a, it's quite a commoditized skill. It's something you're doing that probably a lot of different people could do. And as such, 
with no leverage, very little accountability and very little specific knowledge, you're not going to get paid a whole lot. Let's move up a level and you, he, you might be the general contractor, you're working on the house on behalf of the owner and you might be getting paid 50 grand to do the whole project of repairs or whatever it might be and from that, you're going to pay the laborer 15 bucks an hour and then between that 50 grand to do the project and the $15 an hour, you're going to keep the difference. So obviously, there's a better place to be. We know it's better because there's a bit of accountability. You're accountable to the person who's paying for the job uh, directly. It's not just like you're working for a boss. You're actually working directly for the customer or for the client. There's also the leverage of being able to manage the labor. So you're leveraging, you're getting somebody else to work for you. That's a whole lot of leverage for you there. And there might be also a little bit of specific knowledge added to this mix as well, how to organize a team, how to make them show up on time, how to deal with specific city regulations or council rules that you need to work around in order to get the job done. Now, a step beyond this might be the real estate developer. So, the developer is someone who's going to buy the property, hire the bunch of contractors and transform the land into something of much higher value. You're probably going to have to take out a big loan to buy a house or to go to all the investors out there and raise money. Then you buy the house, you tear it down, you rebuild it and sell it again. So, instead of the 50 grand that the general contractor gets that you're hiring or the $15 an hour like the laborer that they're hiring, the developer might be able to make a million dollars or half a million dollars in profit when they sell the house for more than they bought it for. But now notice what is required from the developer. Right now, they've taken a lot more risk, a lot more accountability, a lot more leverage and they need a lot more specific knowledge. They need to understand fundraising, city regulations, where the real estate market is, is it a peak or a trough, where it's going and whether they should take on the risk or not. So, it's a lot more difficult as part of the three parts of the puzzle. One level up again might be someone who's managing money in a real estate fund. So, they've got an enormous amount of capital and money that they're leveraging. They're dealing with lots of investors. They're dealing with lots of developers. They're buying huge amounts of housing inventory. So, the one level down, the real estate developer, they're doing one, one property at a time. The real estate fund, they might be doing tens or hundreds or even thousands of deals at the same time. Now, you might think it ends there but it doesn't. There's a point beyond that even and this could only be just one or two people in a, in a backyard garage in the, this day and age and they're saying to themselves, actually, I want to bring the maximum leverage to bear in this market and the maximum specific knowledge. So, that person might say, all right, well, I understand real estate and I understand everything from basic housing construction to build properties and selling them to how real estate markets work and thrive and also understand the technology business. I understand how to recruit developers, how to write code, how to build a good product, how to raise money from venture capitalists and how to return it and how all of that sort of stuff works. So, this might be one single person. It might be a, a team or a partnership or multiple different people that bring different skill sets, different specific knowledge uh, in technology and in real estate. This would lead to massive accountability because that company's name is going to be at high risk. Uh, but all the people here are devoting their lives to taking on this one big significant risk to build this one big product that they can leverage. So each level we've come across, the laborer, the general contractor, the developer, the real estate fund, the disruptive technology team, we'll call them. Each one of them, as we move up, has got increasing leverage, accountability, and specific knowledge. You're adding in money-based leverage on top of labor-based leverage in the first few levels. Toward the end, you're adding in code-based leverage on top of money and labor, and that allows you to create something bigger and bigger and bigger and get closer to owning a lot of the upside with the, the margins that are in technology and compare that to at the very start where you just uh, paid a salary to go and fix the ding in the wall. 
in a thousand parallel universes, you want to be wealthy in 999 of them. You don't want to be wealthy in 10 or 20 of those thousand because that would have meant that you just got lucky. Instead, we want to remove luck as a factor and we want building wealth and getting rich to be a skill instead of luck. So, there are four kinds of luck we can look at um, in trying to get rich. The first one is just blind luck. You get lucky because something completely out of your control happened. You might have just got a tax lotto ticket for your birthday win a million bucks, you get rich, but you're not, what, out of that 1,000 parallel universes, you're probably rich in 0.001% of them, (laughs) aren't you? Maybe even less. The second is luck through persistence, hard work, hustle, motion, motivation. This is where you're running and creating opportunities. So, you're generating a lot of energy. You're trying to stir things up. It's like you said, it's like you're mixing a, a Petri dish, a whole bunch of different things. You're trying out different combinations to see what works, but through enough force, through enough hustle, energy, and hard work, luck is going to find you. The third way of luck is becoming good at spotting luck. If you're skilled in your field, you're going to notice a lucky break when it happens in your field. I think of uh, Franz Johansson, his book, The Click Moment. He said, work very, very hard at finding opportunities and when you find the other opportunity, go all in on them. And if you do, um, you've spotted luck and you've capitalized on it. And out of that thousand parallel universe, there's a lot more of them, you're going to end up rich. The fourth and the last way is the weirdest and the hardest way and that's to build unique character, unique brand, unique mindset and unique skills which actually causes luck to find you. So, one example he gives here is perhaps you're the best person at the world at risky deep sea diving. So, you're known to take on these wild deep sea dives that nobody else is going to dare to attempt. So, you've created this skill set, this mindset, this character and then by sheer luck, somebody else finds a sunken treasure ship off the coast. They can't get to it. Nobody else can do it. You're the only one person that's willing to go down and try and extract that treasure from the treasure ship. All of a sudden, somebody else's luck of finding the, the ship is actually now your luck of being the one person who's actually able to capitalize on it. So, with this fourth kind of luck, it sort of starts to become a bit more deterministic and stops being luck. The definition starts fading from luck to destiny. With this four type, what we're doing is building our character in a very certain way, probably using some of the principles we've already spoken about. Then your character, it's going to become your destiny. Naval's final piece of advice of getting, getting wealthy is to be patient. Everyone wants to be rich immediately, but the world, because the world's so efficient, immediate isn't really something that's going to work for you. You have to put in the time, you have to put in the hours, and you have to put yourself in the position with the specific knowledge, with accountability, and with leverage, with the authentic skill set you have to be that one best person in the world at that one weird, unique thing that you're doing, and that's all going to take time and patience. Yeah, you have to enjoy it, keep doing it. Remember, it's going to be a little bit more like play for you, whereas for everyone else, it's going to probably look like work or what you're doing. But when you find this, you just keep doing it, keep doing it, keep doing it. Don't keep track of what you're doing and don't keep count. It's not going to be easy. Actually, it's going to be really, really freaking hard. It's going to be the hardest thing that you ever do, but it's also going to be rewarding. If you look at the kids who are born rich, they've got really no meaning or no sort of sense of purpose or achievement in their lives. What your resume is, it's not a list of the jobs that you've done. It's actually just a catalog of your suffering. Yeah, reading your resume of a rich person, it's going to be about all the sacrifice they made and the hard things they did. So, it's going to be really, really hard, but the tools are available for you to get rich and it's all out there. 